Hello and welcome to Cities ABC video podcast series. My name is Dinis Guarda and talking about ideas and the biggest challenges and solutions to the problems humanity is facing. Um, the questions and the challenges we're facing are bigger than ever, but at the same time, we have a lot of opportunities to think out of the box and as well to make a, a world a bit better place and as well to create a, something that I'm very focused, trust in tech and as well trust in innovation, which is critical, especially for the purpose of the call today. And as well, especially when it comes to the areas of cybersecurity and the areas that we are facing in terms of increasing challenges in the way we look at technology, the way we look at data, the way we look at infrastructure. These podcasts and videos are part of the platform I'm, I co-founded, citiesabc.com, a new wiki for AR, intelligent smart cities, and platform for reinventing cities and all of us citizens. And this distributed all over the internet has been growing quite substantial, and we're working to make it as well an independent, but as well a thriving space for having leaders talking about the way the world is moving and changing. So... Welcome um, today to an interview with uh, Cole Murphy, that is a cybersecurity advisor for WISE Cybersecurity Transparency Center in Brussels. So Cole uh, is an expert in these areas of cybersecurity and technology. And prior to joining OI, Cole was the international director of BESI Group Cybersecurity and Information Resilience Professional Service Business are responsible for this business unit's growth behind the UK and Ireland. Previously, as a director of Espion, Colm was a founding member of the management team responsible for growing the company to international success. And uh, this company, uh, focused in cybersecurity technology distribution, was acquired by Exertis in November 2015 and other different areas of uh, growth um, between multiple groups. Colm holds a BA from Trinity College in Dublin. He's from uh, Ireland, a wonderful country that I really like. And a postgraduate diploma from Dublin Institute of Technology. He has 20 years experience working in cybersecurity, information resilience, privacy, e-discovery, and digital forensics, and incident response in both sales and technical roles. He has led and managed a range of products across EMEA, APAC, and the US. And right now, of course, he's leading the Cybersecurity Transparency Center in Brussels uh, for Hawaii, and um, in a very high-profile position, especially bearing in mind the challenge of uh, cybersecurity and everything related with that. So welcome to our series, Colm. It's a pleasure to have you here. Now, Dennis, thank you so much. It's great to be here too. So Colm, I'm, I'm particularly excited about uh, uh, talking with you, especially you represent one of probably the biggest technology company in the world right now. And as well, I know that there's a lot of things going on, but there's a lot of cool stuff. So let's focus on the cool stuff. I think I'll leave the other parts outside of this. But I would like to, to start. So can you tell us about your profile and background and uh, from education to technology and as well, how do you see all this? How do you end up being an expert in cybersecurity and as well a, a global yeah. leader in this area? Well, uh, like a lot of things in life, it, it's, some of it's by accident. Um, I must update my profile because, uh, unfortunately for me, it's probably more than 20 years now I've been involved with cybersecurity. And um, back as far as when I left university, actually, about 96, 97. As you know, and you'll remember, um, the only show in town at the time really was technology. It was the, it was the, it was the beginning of another digital transformation, you might remember, the dot-com boom um, of the late 90s. And that, and that was very much alive and well when I uh, left university and um, found my way into a small um, company in Dublin, in Ireland, which was just starting to um, deploy security technologies to large enterprises in Ireland at the time. So the banks, the governments, the big PLCs. And I really went in as a dog's body, Dennis, like a lot of people. I was, I was more interested in going into a small business to learn about business, actually, to understand how businesses work, everything from sales and marketing to internal operations and HR and, and paying people at the end of the month to the technology side. And I was really a dog's body. I found I was a pretty good dog's body and a useful dog's body and very quickly ended up um, out in the field deploying these security technologies in these, these large uh, organizations. So installing firewalls, gateway security, encryption devices, um, remote, secure remote access. So actually 
funnily enough, as I think about security and cybersecurity, in fact, it wasn't called cybersecurity at all back then. You don't know. It was, it was IT security or network security or data security. Cybersecurity is a re relatively recent phenomenon to describe all of those things. But yeah, I was out in the field and there was some element of digital transformation going on. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, this internet thing, that was starting to be used in, in new ways. And I remember can, security in a way was an enabler in that you may remember things like site-to-site -site VPNs where two offices or several offices around the world could, could securely connect to each other over the internet using this um, VPN technology, virtual private networks. Um, and I, 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 that's where I cut my teeth, you know. I was really a field engineer, an IT security engineer, installing and configuring and securing um, networks. Um, that company grew very quickly, um, as did a lot of companies um, back then, and they all didn't last, as you know. Um, but I was young and adventurous, and I got on a plane and went to New Zealand, actually, and, and took a job with one of the big four auditing companies whereby I was starting to look the other way in. In other words, the networks I had previously set up securely, I was starting to audit them, check them, test them, and got into things at the time like penetration testing, hacking, ethical hacking. I wasn't, I wasn't particularly, you might say, the best ethical hacker in the world. I wasn't bad, but it certainly gave me an appreciation for that world, its value, and certainly reading and writing these very heavily technical reports um, and um, um, enjoyed that actually as an, as, as an adventure and, 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 and took a position thereafter with their network associates. You know them now actually as, as McAfee. At the time, they were the biggest security vendor in the world, probably still are there or thereabouts. Um, and they set me up as a kind of a fixer. You know, I was going around Southeast Asia and Australia, back to New Zealand, um, Hong Kong, places like that whereby I would um, arrive on site where something had gone wrong and I was there to save the day and fix it. So I learned a lot and um, worked with some very interesting people, some very interesting technology, security technologies and struck me actually. And maybe it's because I, I came from the small island that is Ireland, but you know, the, the, in that part of the world, I found them very keen to try new technologies. They wanted the latest thing, the latest version, using it in actually quite interesting ways and interesting business models. And, and I kept my eye on that kind of thing. But, you know, a, a young, a young um, um, mid-20s guy hanging around Southeast Asia, you know, you, you only get so much mileage out of it. Uh, um, so um, at the time... The, the, the dot-com bubble by then had well and truly burst, you, you, you remember. And, and I went, actually, with two colleagues of mine, ex-colleagues of mine, were um, looking to set up a business in Ireland, cybersecurity business. And they asked me, would I come along as a kind of the technical side? So I, I hopped on a plane back to Ireland, and, and, and in, in, the, in, the, in the back of a darkened pub, uh, we hatched a plan in Dublin. Um, and that was in, you know, 2002 thereabouts so uh, we set up a business a technology distribution business where we take emerging security technologies from around the world and bring them into the UK and Irish marketplace and sell them through a channel of resellers and in parallel we set up essentially a cybersecurity consulting business to do penetration testing and, and um, instant response type services and we stuck with that uh, every year, Dennis was going to be the year, you know, but we stuck with that for, for 15 years. And eventually, each business was acquired. As you mentioned, Exertus, a pan-European technology distribution business, acquired our um, distribution business. At that stage, we had offices around Europe and in, the, in, in New York. And BSI, being the British Standards Institution, acquired the, 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 the consulting business. And that became the kind of... The heart of their global uh, cybersecurity professional services business, and I worked with with uh, BSI for a couple of years. We acquired some more businesses, and we grew that business around the world. They've offices in many many countries around the world, and we grew that business out outwards into those offices, and and that came to an end um, um, uh, last year. 
whereby I decided to do something completely different and took this role with Huawei. And that, that was uh, um, interesting for me and in that, you know, it's back into an enterprise for one, which, which I missed actually, because I, I was always the, the, the kind of consultant, uh, um, you know, talking to them from the outside in and it's very nice to be back in and looking at, at all of the great things that happen in this massive organization around the world um, and, and, and you know to play my part in, in, in the cybersecurity discussion in advancing our cybersecurity agenda generally and, and I think just being a, 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 for, for others a window into this, this um, global business and into the uh, cybersecurity operations um, around the world. So that's the whirlwind version. Now, very impressive. And I think from Deloitte to McPhee, uh, uh, McAfee, and uh, of course, right now, uh, with one of the biggest technology companies, probably well, the biggest company in the world in technology at the moment. So there's a quite a big journey. So on that level, I would like uh, just to touch on you. You touch a bit of the evolution from the dot-com to the, the full digital transformation we are living in. And as well, we still have a big challenge going ahead because a huge part of the world economy is still in paper and is still offline. And um, so... How, what are your views on how business and governments can cope with this digital transformation, especially someone like you that have been going through all this kind of uh, ride yeah. uh, journey in terms of this acceleration of digital and so all the things that come with cybersecurity attached? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'd say one could say, you know, there's not enough digital transformation or if there is, it, it doesn't happen fast enough. Um, actually, and I've heard you say that, Dennis, and it's fair to say it. But I think that said, if we think back to the dot-com era, you know, web applications, it's really only now and in the last, I don't know, 10 years that we start to see people really adapt web applications en masse and that the, the, the general population, public, starting to be comfortable with them and use them and, and instead of walking down the road to visit your service provider X or Y, you know, you sit in your house and interact with them on the, um, uh, through a web application. So, you know, on the one hand, we say it doesn't happen fast enough, but on the other hand, I think these things do actually take some time. And while we're all impatient, um, and probably rightly so, I think that we have to recognize that things happen probably more slowly sometimes than we'd like. Um, and, and, and sometimes I think, actually, that, that it happens under the radar. We, we think of the big digital transformation um, events like, you know, movies or music, the obvious ones. Um, but there are others that, let's say, aren't kind of transformational in the sense of everybody knows about them. I mean, one, one for example, um, that's that I think about from time to time happen, happen quietly and probably not people are even aware of it is, is um, in a profession, the legal profession, which actually isn't very well known for being, let's say, you know, technological leaders or, or being the first to embrace any new technology. But, you know, I'm from Ireland, which is, is a common law jurisdiction as opposed to, let's say, continental European civil, civil law, in common law jurisdictions, there's this thing in law whereby if you're in litigation, you need to do this document exchange. So I get documents that, um, from you that, that are relevant to the, our, our dispute and I have to give you documents. Um, and in times gone by, you know, that was a whole load of junior lawyers sitting in a room, flicking through paper and pulling out potentially relevant, you know, correspondence and co contracts and whatever. Um, and in fact, I remember even a long time ago meeting a, a family friend who had inky fingers and I was asked, asking the person, you know, what's with the inky fingers? And it was because they were redacting, manually redacting confidential information from these documents. So, you know, that, that, that particular um, industry has actually unbelievably transformed over the last 10 years or less in that now they use um, machine learning, AI algorithms to um, do some training on a document set to point out what most likely looks like a relevant document and then the computer goes off and finds them and, and clearly, you know, has transformed that particular 
element of what's called the law and an important part of our, of our lives are certainly co- corporate life in that, um, you know, it's much faster, cheaper, um, probably, um, the, and the science says, you know, more accurate, you know, humans make mistakes, they're tired, they, they're, they're not interested. Um, the computer, it learns and it usually makes uh, better decisions, you know, in that sense. So I think the point being, you know, a long way to say, you know, sometimes things happen that aren't transformative in a big sense, but they're happening in the industry quietly and under the radar and, and it will take time. Um, so with some patience, I think think we'll see more of it. But, but maybe to hone in on on, on, a, on, a, on a lens I view the world through, the cybersecurity lens, um, you know, people say cybersecurity is an obstacle sometimes. I mean, the cloud, for example. I don't want to put my stuff in the cloud because, you know, security this and privacy that. So, you know, I wonder about that, you know. I think actually... Um, you know, there's the spotlight on cybersecurity at the moment, but actually cybersecurity uh, and, and cybersecurity practitioners are a sophisticated bunch and it's a mature enough industry and, and it very, there's a lot of organizations that are very good at it and certainly cloud service providers have all of the credentials, the certifications, they're staffed, they've skilled, they're 24-7 and I think for the most part many of these can do security a lot better than any organization could do on their own and, and, and you know they have the scale so they can do it in a more cost-effective way so security i think sometimes used to say it's an obstacle to digital transformation projects i think sometimes is if we could be more thoughtful about that well actually so, you know i might rather sometimes my data is, is stored in in a in a data center where i know there's 24 7 security operations center there's monitoring they've sophisticated technology they've the third-party credentials and, and certifications that demonstrate they know what they're doing um, so you know cybersecurity, um i think shouldn't be a an obstacle and i would say of course when you look at some of the more um let's say exciting digital transformation um, areas or areas of digital transformation fintech for example or blockchain or IOT you know cybersecurity needs to be very much up front and center in those trans change projects and um, clearly fintech you know obviously security is a, a central um, issue blockchain too um, but, but when you move beyond those just to say um, smart cities or to um, you know automate um, um, to other areas of um, change medicine um, and others um, automotive transport and so on I think security there's a new topic in that if something goes wrong and if there's an event in theory possibly that could result in the loss of human life and that that's different that's new um and therefore um again the cybersecurity topic issue should be up for you know should be up front and center previously the cybersecurity person was in the back room and called on when needed but these days i think that they're very much up, up front and center and i think even from if you look at modern day boards and actually huawei is a great example um they have the vocabulary to discuss cybersecurity issues. They're interested in them. They pursue them. They ask about them. The same way as they can analyze and review a financial statement, they can discuss cybersecurity. And it's not good enough, in my mind, for a board in an organization these days to say, oh, you know, that cybersecurity thing's for somebody else at some other meeting. Well, it isn't. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a central area of risk. It should be discussed. And certainly, uh, I see that uh, in spades here uh, in Huawei. It's um, it's interesting to see right from the very top of the organisation that it's a, um, a common, uh, commonly discussed discussed topic. It's great for people like me and others uh, who work in that area. I think that so looking at precisely like you just said, so 
from the digital transformation, we went through the work of uh, cybersecurity and IT to be kind of the foundation, the plumbing, to become the central stage. And this is the central stage right now for governments, for business, for institutions, and for us, like you said, in terms of healthcare, cybersecurity can can create well, can actually save millions of lives or even kill millions of lives if, if we don't have the right the right data, the right infrastructure. So, how do you see the cybersecurity industry best practice at the stage where we are? Yeah, yeah, best practice. You know, when we talk about best practice, Dennis, kind of one word usually comes to mind, and it's kind of fragmented. You know, there, there, there's so many different uh, look it's it's technology and of course there's different different elements of technology that require their own best practices and standards and certifications there's so many across the world um, and of course there's vendor driven best practices because they know their technology best so they describe how one should correctly secure and configure their technology so it's actually um extraordinarily fragmented and there are many in fact there's an interesting website I go to from time to time is the cyber security uh, sorry I think it's I can't remember the name but it's cyber security startup observatory or something along those lines whereby they track startups in the cyber security space and it's a mind-boggling array of thousands tens of thousands of organizations all around the world all doing different things saying buy our thing and you'll comply with x or buy a thing and all your troubles will go away um, so you know in terms of best practice it's 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 difficult to keep up uh, and it's something i've seen done very well again here in Huawei. They, they have teams of people whose role it is to um, gather all of these best practice inputs consolidate them uh, evaluate them and they get fed as inputs into, for example, product um, design requirements. Um, so, you know, the security requirements of product design. So it's very um, fragmented. And certainly, I think, you know, just an example of best practice. For, it, Huawei, I think, is like more than 240 different cert- certifications for, you know, various products. And then dozens and dozens of management system certifications. So, so and all of these these things are, you know, dem, uh, for us to provide assurance to others that we do things in accordance with best practice. But you know, there's, there's a lot of them. Um, it would be tremendously helpful to us and others. I mean, if it's hard for us, you know, huge global organization in 170 countries think for how hard it is for you know an sme or a small com- com- uh, startup trying to break into new markets so it's, it's, and there's of course then the regulatory obligations you can you can say also are technically could be seen as best practices so you know you're, you're you've got all of these uh, requirements so it would be tremendously helpful i think to have some consolidation in that space and to have some effort to um align around the world and to open up that discussion i think one good example actually a success story probably you could say is is gdpr in europe you know previously there was 28 different privacy regimes one for each member state at the time um, and the gdpr was designed to kind of harmonize that you know it's difficult for any organization to go into each of those member states some small countries some large and and comply with each individual regime so gdpr was i think tremendously helpful in that regard and i think in the telco space certainly we'd welcome any initiative along that line um and um, we do see we do see um progress in that area but certainly um it can't happen fast enough so one of the the things is so we know this importance, and I think you, you touch a very important thing. There is a relationship between different countries' approaches to cybersecurity, different regulatory approaches, and even just aligning efforts and certification, which is a big network, uh, and a big challenge in itself. So how do you cope and prepare, like, the basics, let's say? Because I think when you talk about cybersecurity, there's a lot of myths, 
and there's a lot of the dark web, uh, my data and all the things, but there's a lot of very basic stuff that business and companies and organizations and cities have to cope. So how do you yeah. cope with that and prepare? Let's say from a very basic perspective, I think this is particularly important yeah. for anyone listening to us, but as well, even big organizations and cities and countries have no clue about this. Yeah. Know that better than me. Well, I think that they do have a clue actually. And I think that, that, in some ways, there's two parallel conversations going on, and there, there's the kind of it's a good story in the media, cybersecurity, you know, hackers, uh, the dark web you mentioned, and, and it's a good story, and it's new, interesting from a human interest point of view, um, and that can tend to, you know, generate some alarmist um, noise. Um, and this feeling that actually we're not prepared. But I think that organizations have been doing this for a long time and actually are very well prepared um, and handle and manage already cybersecurity. And it's a question of risk management and they, and they, they do it very well. And I think that there's a degree of maturity in that in the industry that that that's probably when you talk to cybersecurity experts we know this but when you talk to you listen to politicians it's like there's two parallel tracks or two parallel conversations and they're not at all alike you know but certainly when you, you listen to the experts you talk to the experts and you look at some of the many organizations around the world they do cybersecurity very well and of course there are things that happen from time to time and it's really at this stage is how well you respond to those events you know how do you contain how well firstly can you detect it promptly and how you contain things and i think no longer at least in in the world i'm in is you know um, being hacked um um you know a dirty word it's it's more around how how you handle that how you manage that how you're set up to deal with that detect respond and contain and you know comply them with whatever obligations you have but i think um generally in terms of coping i think it's a good um well a good way to think about it is actually that that it's a shared cope you know that it's a shared responsibility there's a lot of players and you take huawei you know we make the the the, the technology that provide the communication technology um there are operators who then operate it and manage it in their networks. And they're very sophisticated, in fact, very mature, and have, you know, extraordinarily um, an abundance of cybersecurity skills and experience and expertise. And then you have service providers running services across the top of it. And then you have consumers. And I think, and of course, don't forget, I think the government, um, the policymakers, you know, set the rules and the regulatory um, bodies, you know, um, enforce them and oversee them and perform the due diligence. So there's a whole lot of players in any ecosystem when it comes to cybersecurity. And I think the, 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 the way to cope, as you, you put it, is for all of those players to be joined up and to work together and to... Um, share information and you know not only within industry but cross industry i mean financial services in fact is a great i think example to look to as a as a as a um industry that has done cybersecurity extraordinarily well and i think they were always first to the party and for obvious reasons the money involved um, and they were a target and um, they've built up very sophisticated you know um, sharing mechanisms and learning mechanisms and technological solutions over the years and you know others can learn from that too so i'd say dennis you know it's a shared responsibility um, the eyes are on some players from time to time but you know the modern technological piping that you mentioned is vast so there's a, what we call this attack surface. You know, it's, it's, it's broad and it goes beyond any one player, any one industry. Um, so therefore, uh, we need to find ways to work better together and to, to discuss these things uh, more openly. I think you made a very good point that sometimes we only look, <coughs> especially when you think about cybersecurity, there's a tendency to think about the negative part. All the issues with the uh, attacks, all the issues of uh, big risk. You know what, Dennis, yeah. I've thought about this. And just when you mention that, everything, think about 
cybersecurity and even the lexicon, you know, a firewall, gateway. And it, all of the, the language of it is about stopping stuff, you know, and that's fair enough. That, that, that's just what it was. But I don't think it's particularly helpful. It's not very polite. We try to find some way to make cybersecurity more an invisible thing. But at the moment, you know, it, it, it's in the spotlight for in, in the geopolitical discussion. Um, but actually, and it would lead you to believe that, you know, there's all these gaping holes everywhere. But actually, there isn't, um, um, you know. But sorry, I, I cut across you there, Dennis, but you just sparked that thought in my mind. No, no, it's a very good thought. And you're right, actually, because if you look at, uh, for instance, COVID-19, everyone right now is working remotely. Everyone is dependent of digital process, even organizations and countries that were not. And effectively, it's working. So we have to think, yeah. I think, uh, if you look at the geopolitical news, you only think normally about the negative stuff. And actually, there's a lack yeah. of education in mainstream media and in mainstream networks around these topics. And I think that's a big, uh, important thing that we have to consider. So that, that gets me to my next question. Um, so we are among COVID-19, and that is a, one of the biggest crises that we have that is affecting health, financial services, economic systems, is destroying entire economies. But we still have an entire ecosystem of technology and infrastructure that is working. And like you said, and I think you pointed to a very good point, it's working properly and is moving, even with all the risks. So my question is, um, uh, very concretely, uh, when we talk about cities and governments, I, I'm working with a couple of governments and with a lot of cities, def if definitely there's a kind of, um, in one end, the professionals doing that are doing it extremely well, but then the narrative, it's quite complex. So my question is, um, I don't know, if you, if you could elaborate how in top level cities and the governments can actually look at cyber threats and as well deal with that in a better way to probably make the bridge between the experts like yourselves and the rest of the population to understand there's a stability and there's not so much myths around this as people might think about it. Yeah. Well, as a European in, in Europe, you know, I see a lot of work being done there actually in the, the um, regulatory framework. So, you know, there's already things like the NIST directive, which requires providers of, critical services to be very mindful and take care of um, security report incidents and um, um, work closely with the, the, the national regulators to, um, you know, make sure everything's going in the right direction. So, so there's a certain amount of work already underway and has been underway for some time and, and will only continue to um, ensure and I suppose hold um, service providers and people like us and others to account from a cybersecurity point of view, um, 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 and that's um, certainly, I think, uh, helpful. Um, we all want to give um, our stakeholders that kind of assurance that things are going well. And they are when they're going well. They are going well. Of course, um, one way we feel. Um, and I've, I feel that we can do that is through, um, you know, independent oversight in the form of um, certification schemes and using these best practice standards you mentioned to, to um, have some third party assess a product or a service or, or a, you know, a network and say, you know, we've looked at this from, and we're authorized by the government, for example, as qualified third-party experts to do this and we've looked at it and we think it's um, very much in line with you know best practice standard and therefore we're going to apply this um, certificate and that that certificate can then assure um, uh, a buyer for example or a service provider user that um, um, it is what it should be, that it will operate as it should be, that it's secured in accordance with um, best practices, that it handles your data in accordance with privacy uh, laws, and so on. So I think, you know, it's, it, 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 that, that's, you know, normal. I mean, when you think about things like electricity or water and the water we drink, it's not always, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't always come out the top of the way it should be, but for the most part it does, and that's because there's a whole process of, um, you know, standards and checks. And the, the, the airline industry is actually a really good example. 
know, and, and that includes right down to the passengers in terms of how you behave when you step on a plane, to the regulatory environment that, that describes how it's all going to work, to the manufacturers who make them. You know, we all get on planes and we trust them. And we don't think so much about all that's gone into getting this plane off the ground and getting you from A to B. But, you know, there's a whole kind of set of shared responsibilities in that model that I think can be applied to across a whole load of, of things to, to uh, protect us as citizens, to protect cities, to protect governments and, and um, so on and so on. So, you know, I think that that's a good analogy, actually, the airline um, industry, the aviation industry more broadly. That's a very important thing, and I think it's going to be increasing. I think one of the things probably that we have to take from 2020 is that digital transformation will be accelerating to a path that probably never seen in the last 20 years. Yeah. And I think definitely the next, especially the next one year, is going to be critical uh, with everything going on. So that brings me to the next question. It's probably more sensitive, but I want to take it from the most positive side. So Huawei is one of the biggest, well, the biggest 5G uh, uh, developing the world and there's a lot of issues around that but I would like to look uh, at the challenges and the opportunities you see on that I know that there's a lot of discussion a lot of uh, to be honest a lot of people not understanding what they're talking about but yeah. everyone has an opinion so how do you see do, that yeah it's, it's a to it's a topical it's in the mainstream media you know who would have who would have thunk it as they say where I come from uh, you know um, Firstly, you know, 5G, let's just look at 5G for what it is. It's not this, it's not a revolution. It, I, I prefer to see it as this evolution, and it's an evolution of 4G. So, and it's standards driven. So there's 3GPP, the global standards organization responsible for describing, you know, the rules of 5G and the protocols. Um, and actually, as a matter of fact, and not a lot of people seem to remember or know this outside of the, the telco industry uh, generally that you know 5g is a whole lot more security in it than 4g ever did just by nature of the the standard so it's got more encryption stronger encryption it's got more um in authentication between various components you know it's got better denial of service protection it's got base fake base station you know there's a whole load of things in there that weren't in its predecessor. So just out of the box, let's say, you know, 5G is actually uh, more secure. And you happily connect to your 4G or even 3G network right now today, and, you know, away you go. 5G, as per the standard, is more secure. That said, um, um, and you, you talked about, you know, the opportunities and I, and I won't go into them because I'm, I'm sure you talk many times with, with uh, and I've heard you talk many times with others about, you know, the amazing opportunities. And you mentioned some already. You mentioned healthcare, medicine, uh, transportation. Um, and uh, for me, you know, oh, uh, um, connecting the unconnected is a big opportunity. 5G. We talk. We talk about smart cities all the time. But what about the, the rural? Those in the rural areas too. So you know there are all these opportunities. And um, as we mentioned before, um, some of them um, obviously involve you know humans and uh, the potential for something could, could go wrong, could be catastrophic. Catastrophic. So therefore, the security conversation slightly changes that's one thing i think we need to be mindful of with 5g therefore you know security rightly should be discussed and rightly should be front and center and we've already discussed that i think another thing that that about 5g and this is interesting for me because it, the, the the 5g network architecture looks more like a traditional it network you know there's a there's more stuff let's say and there's more software there's virtualization and there's there's zones and that, in a sense, is a good thing, obviously, because it becomes more configurable. You can have different security policies for different, different customers or different um, scenarios, and it, it's very um, flexible. Um, and therein, you know, therefore, those opportunities can be exploited. That, that, um, um, but what it does mean is that that attack surface, and I think I mentioned those words before, in other words, the, the amount of things you could potentially um, um, target is more, but then again, you know, 
a lot of that's behind closed doors and isn't accessible on the internet, so to speak. So, you know, there's a certain amount of alarmism there. You know, you people and experts, I should say really experts, have been securing those kinds of networks for 20 years and more. And they're very good at it. And there's very there's a well-worn path. And I think um, the operators, a very sophisticated bunch, and they know very well how to manage their networks. And they're very good at securing their networks. And I think they're you know very well up to that task of securing those networks. And of course, they'll work within the regulatory um, frameworks and um, but I think they're very well up to, up to that task. So we talk about um, 5G in its alarmist way, but it, actually it's more secure and it's, than, than its predecessors. And, and it's um, um, very configurable and, um, and, very, um, uh, and the expertise exists. And there's an abundance of expertise out there. And of course, we hear about cybersecurity skills shortages sometimes and there's, there's, there's truth to that but you know that's that's a, an opportunity there's um uh, a, a growing number of um people involved in, in computer science and studying computer science and as they emerge from that you know they'll be um well equipped to take on those roles and, and there's work underway there you know, i think across the world to to develop a, a larger pool of of expertise but you know yeah I, I agree with you that you know it's the two conversation thing there's a parallel conversation there's a conversation sometimes that's um you know when politicians are going to be politicians and they, when they speak they speak to their constituents and they say things they may think their constituents want to hear but it's unhelpful i think for 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 the industry to this kind of alarmist it spreads you know some fear and it's just kind of unnecessary and, and of course, you know, as some of these opportunities you mentioned are exploited over time, um, certainly there'll be rules of the game and there'll be expectations in terms of security and monitoring and, and um, structures around that. So, you know, look, I agree with you that, um, that um, the world and the, 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 the cybersecurity industry and the, the technology or the IT industry generally is well equipped and very well um, ready to take on the challenges already taking on that challenge. Very good point. And I think one of the things that I, if you think probably around the, I see there was no issues with 3G and 4G and suddenly with 5G, there's a massive issues. So this brings us as well until, in, into a kind of artificial created problem. But as well, um, one question I have is, how do you see the verified security standards in the 5G and telecom industry being you or an expert on this area? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good one actually, Dennis, because there are, we talked about, I talked about, we talked about, I think, fragmentation in standards and there's lots of them and there's different standards in different places. And I think there's never been a um, kind of globally um, adopted cybersecurity standard for the telco industry uh, until recently um, and that was a, a recently there's a, a standard has emerged called NISAS stroke SCAS um, network evaluation security assurance scheme I think maybe possibly have jumbled that up would you get the idea it's a, it's a security um, assurance scheme specifically targeting the telco industry um, and specifically at the vendor level of products that get purchased by operators and, and then end up running the communication networks. So, for example, there was never a scheme. There's stuff like common criteria, which is widely known around the world and widely accepted by um, governments around the world as, a, as assurance that a particular IT, a generic IT product, you know, does what it says on the tin from a security point of view. But there, it, it wouldn't have, for example, specific tests within that for a wireless base station, for example. Um, so, so 3GPP being the standards, uh, 5G, 4G, 3G standards people, um, along with their colleagues in the GSMA, that, that being the kind of global um, industry association for the tel telecom industry, came together and created this standard. And, 
And it's very much targeted towards the needs of the telco network from a security perspective. Things like common criteria I mentioned, you know, that could take a year or two, in fact. In fact, Huawei just was awarded common criteria ELA 4 plus, which is the highest level of security assurance you can get from that particular scheme. And I think it took the best part of two years. That was a world first for our 5G um, um, RAN, the radio access side in the core. Um, but it took a long time. And that, that causes some difficulties, I think, given the kind of frequency which new products get created and so on. So, so, so um, as I mentioned, NISAS, was designed to overcome some of those challenges. And it's, and it's, it's very much um, an, a global effort, very much has the support of all the players from the vendors like us and our, our, our peers. And the operators, the largest operators in the world are fully um, behind this, the, the testing laboratories. So in other words, the government approved independent testing labs that can actually perform the tests of the checks. Um, and really what we want to see is, you know, um, uh, the policymakers and others, uh, the regulatory, um, um, co our colleagues in the regulatory side of things, to, to see uh, NISAS as a valuable um, way to provide that kind of third-party assurance and level, level the playing field, you know, and I, I think um, we're undergoing testing now. There's two phases. There's a kind of a process test and then the physical testing of, of devices in a lab. Um, we're undergoing, we've completed the first part and um, we're undergoing the second part right now, actually, as we speak, to be completed in August. And that's kind of a world's first. We, we put ourselves forward as the guinea pigs. Um, but it's still not perfect and that will evolve over time. You know, there's a, it's undergoing a kind of a phase two revamp that will maybe make that there'll be different levels. For example, the European, um, the, the European Cybersecurity Act uh, I think rightly has different levels of assurance, like basic, substantial, and high, or something where, whereby you know different products can get different levels depending on what they are and where they'll be used and, and, and what they'll be used for. Um, and, and I think NISIS and so on is going to go, is undergoing a version two revamp. But certainly that's um, one to watch, I would say, in that space. And it's specifically for the telco industry and would be particularly useful. Uh, for that entire ecosystem. I mentioned the shared responsibility. So in other words, to give all of those players um, assurance that, you know, when they, they buy something, that it's being tested, checked, and those tests and checked, uh, those tests and checks are particularly specific to uh, what the device actually is. On this area, another question I have is, so one thing is the telecom, the other thing is other industry sectors that are really increasing needing standards because we have so much verticals, like you, you mentioned finance, which is a critical one, and it's probably the most sophisticated one, but for instance, healthcare, and we have, of course, uh, you mentioned navigation, airlines, uh, there's, it never ends, the quality, especially yeah. as the, the, the world economy becomes more interlinked and more digital. So what kind of standards do we need for that? And as well, on, on that relate as well, standards like the, the 3GPP and NASAS, which are areas that I know that you're working and very um, stable on that. Yeah. Um, look, I think standards generally are a good thing in that, you know, I mean, if you think at a basic level, you buy something, I don't know, electrical goods or a car seat for your child to put in the back of the car, you know, you, you, you assume actually that that, from where you have bought it have made some checks and have bought a good one and that it's been somehow independently certified to do what it should do from a safety or security point of view and i think we've kind of just come to it's, we don't think about that much in normal everyday life i think that uh, you mentioned things like iot um you think about it actually with iot you go into a store or an electronic store or a supermarket actually even and buy some IoT device for five euro or 10 euro and bring it home and plug it in and it's now on the internet. So, you know, um, certainly I think that um, any schemes that can provide some assurance to consumers or others that, you know, an IoT device has some um, kind of basic level of, uh, security um, is a good thing, um, and you can you can see why that would be. 
Um, so I think that people want and need and expect that the things they use and buy have been checked and tested and independently validated. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the UK is actually uh, has an interesting scheme. For in um, if, if you want to do business with the UK government, you must have this thing called uh, cyber essentials. And this is basically, if you want to do any kind of work for them at all, as an organization, you're going to tender for some job, you've got to have this. And it's just a very, ba it shows you the very, you know, done some basic level of cybersecurity hygiene and had some third uh, authorized third party and um, confirm that and the same kinds of schemes exist in Germany and France and in other places around the world and I think that it's just um, you know there's a certain amount of common sense to it that you know when we use these communication technologies that um, we would like to think that some third party has checked them test test of them that they're good that they they're going to um, perform correctly when um, they should and when something goes wrong that they'll go wrong in the right way and that's important too you know um, you know that if you think of a lock in the door you hear about these electronic um, um, locks you know you can open it with an app on your phone you may you know do you want the door to fail open or do you want the door to fail shut you know, so there's these kinds of basic questions that the experts will deal with and they'll deal within the standards and they'll certify the device to that standard and that when we buy that thing, we'll know um, that it will do what it's meant to do. Don't ask me, by the way, whether it should fail and shut or fail open. You know, that's a tricky one. I think that is a bigger, another interview, <laughs> especially if you look at that. So I, I think one of the things that you mentioned I, IoT and IoT right now is visible in everything we do from the sensors in our phones to the sensors in shopping centers. Of course, right now, everything with the COVID-19 and a lot of different things. So um, one of the questions that I think it's particularly important to, to ask is how can we measure cybersecurity both for countries, cities and business? And uh, as well, on that level, and I want to touch, uh, it's more technical part, but how can we measure this and the meaning of developing security standards for both public and industries at large? And I think this is very important because if you get these standards, I think you can actually create more measurements and more quality and they probably kill a lot of the issues that we have mostly created by politicians, not necessarily by experts, but as I'll come up with more... Uh, uh, I think the standards and the quality assurements always help people to feel more to feel safer, and as well, bringing these the standards to schools, to universities, and to cities and public makes a big difference. How do you see this, and, and as well, especially the, the the developing of security standards for public and, and, and industries? Yeah, um, it's probably an extension of, of the last question in a sense of what we just discussed. And you know, I think um, I mentioned actually the European. Union through the Cybersecurity Act, we'll have this element of measurement through a basic and a substantial and a high um, um, structure whereby, you know, um, it depends on the nature of uh, what it is you're trying to do with the product, who's going to use the product and all of those things. Um, and I think that's useful. Um, and certainly I think that the people may overlook it, but that the basic level actually is very important just from human point of view that you wanted to have some basic level of security regardless. You know, it might be five euro in the supermarket, but you want it to be um, safe from security point of view and you don't want it to be an, an avenue in for somebody into your home network or office network through which they can start to infiltrate your data. So, you know, I think that's, that's, that's a good thing. So that's one way to to perform the measurement is you obviously have different um, schemes which provide different levels of assurances and that if there's there's a, a service provider who wants to play in a certain space that's that that comes with a higher risk well then they have to go for the high level um, and there's a higher cost to um, um, to do that and of course already you know we find 
um, certainly dealing with governments, you know, they, they expect and require their service providers to have these certifications to whether they're, they're security management systems in terms of how they'll handle data, privacy management systems in terms of how they, they'll obviously adhere to, to their legal obligations and, and, um, and others. And, and they already do that. So in other words, often in order, it's a kind of a, a cost of doing business in, in some places is that you have to comply with these standards and that kind of forces the bar up and gives a degree of measurement. Uh, there's an interesting, and I know you're in, in, I think, Portugal today, there's an interesting company which has a large presence in Portugal actually that does, I won't mention my name, but they're in the area of um, providing cybersecurity risk ratings. And that's a little bit like ratings, I should just say, cybersecurity ratings, just a little bit like um, a credit score or a credit rating. Um, and they do that by monitoring the public web. In other words, it, for example, if you were an organization and you were hacked and data was leaving your organization, that can be seen across the internet. The internet's kind of a public utility and, and there's various ways to see what happens on it so they don't need to look inside the walls of your organization to know that you've been hacked because there's some computer connecting outwards to some known um, command and control center somewhere and they do some very clever stuff in and around that space actually but it's very much at an enterprise level and it's used for example in uh, supply chain um, risk management um, whereby you you know you're going to and do your due diligence on some supplier, and you can get a, a cybersecurity rating from these organisations of that organ of that company. So there's work being done. It's fairly immature, Dennis, but it's certainly an area that there's work being done, and more work will be done. And I think wouldn't surprise me sometime soon. You know, if we hear more about the idea of measurement and ratings and so on, it's an interesting space actually. Yeah, that, that's uh, very enthusiastic and I, I really, um, it's one of the things that I'm particularly interested in standards and I think it's key to kill a lot of the issues we have. For instance, even people that have in my network that are supposed to be quite well educated and actually some of them even quite tech savvy, they coming up with some things that scares me. If they feel like this, of course, the rest of the population is completely lost. So I think that brings me to... Uh, the next question and we have only two to go it's been a, a long but a, fan, a fantastic uh, insights and i appreciate uh, the, the the technology knowledge and the layers because the devil is on details on this thing so Hawaii as one of the global leader powerhouses as well as been having a huge progress in cybersecurity and security verifications bearing in mind the quantity of people using your devices as well all the infrastructure you do on a global scale not just in China but first you are in the in Brussels which is the, the headquarters of European Union and you are as well uh, over there looking at that so can you tell us about this progress that was done on this uh, cybersecurity and security verification by Hawaii, especially the new ERNW review source code for Hawaii okay. 5G core network? Yeah, well, I, I think I mentioned too. I mean, look, clearly we do a whole lot of things internally at an operational level. Um, I, I guess very quickly, there's four kind of things. It's what we do internally and we do an awful lot of that. Um, you know, we've many thousand people working in cybersecurity. In fact, it's interesting for me to find out when I when I came here that there's more than 200 people pen testing all of our stuff internally before it uh, leaves the building. So we've a whole lot of very sophisticated internal um, initiatives underway, and there's a substantial investment, obviously, that goes alongside that. Um, and we have third party. Um, partners who will test us and oversee all of those initiatives and, and uh, tap us on the shoulder if they see room for improvement. Um, and of course, then we have the whole, you know, our customers who, who, of course, they will hire third parties of their own and test our, 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 our things again in their deployed, both pre-deployment and I suppose post-deployment. Uh, in fact, here in Brussels, um, we facilitate that. So we, we're one of the places in the world where our, our clients, our customers and their, their, their experts can come perform those kinds of tests. And ENRW is one you mentioned. Um, they've looked at uh, recently the source code. And, uh, you know, there, there's debates out there about, 
you know, source code, third party source code evaluation and source code validation and source code security checks. And um, we're one of the few that allow us, in other words, we, we are probably actually the only in the telco space that allow. Now we say, yeah, come look at our code. Our door is open. Um, and for that reason, we're, we're, you know, we're definitely, if not one of the most, if not the most inspected companies in the world, but we open it up and they can come here to Brussels and they're here all the time. Um, and they get access to code. And that's what you referred to earlier. And, and people say, you know, well, what's the value in that? Well, there's a lot of value in it because code software developers understand what good code looks like. They understand what a mature software development process looks like. They understand how to both manually and through automated tools find things in code that may be bugs or could be seen as vulnerabilities or could potentially cause problems in certain configuration scenarios and so on. Um, and we welcome that. And that makes us good. That makes us better. That, that keeps us on our toes. And I think the more of that you do, the more people look over your shoulder, uh, the better it is for everybody. It's better for us because, you know, we feel the pressure. We feel the pressure to be good. It's better for our, our customers because they know that, the, that by the time that, that code lands in their network, it's been through many, many hands and many eyes, as we like to say. So um, I think I um, have answered the question. I'm not sure if, um, um, I mean, I've, we've mentioned some other things already in relation to the certifications, and I mentioned NISAS, SCAS, which we're undergoing right now and expect to see the end of that next month, and then the CCELA 4 Plus for our 5G RAN and core, first in the world. So, you know, there's a, a whole lot of things going on. And as somebody who's been around this game for 20, more than 20 years, um, there's some really good stuff happening in here, and it's really good to see, and it's refreshing for, for, for me to be back inside to, to um, back in, in, in at the cutting edge of it and to um, um, you know see all of the um, the initiatives that are underway and will certainly continue into the future amazing so one of the last questions and, and keeping and finishing this in a positive note so um, as someone that has been in the industry for a long time and now of course leading a big responsible um, operation and especially in the center of Europe, which is as well, well one of the leading world economies. So how do you see, or can you tell us about some case studies, some industry case studies from a city, from a government, or from a business that are really successful and then people don't always speak about it? You mentioned a couple of positive elements that things work and that actually that we should, and actually it's true, we are, I'm in Portugal, you are in Brussels, we have people in this behind our scenes that are all over the world in five continents. And at the same time, we are working and we manage to move forward. And sometimes people underestimate that work. Uh, but I think it's important to look especially at constructive case studies, because I think one of the things that I'm particularly concerned, and that's why I created citiesabc.com, and that's why I've been working with a lot of governments and cities, is that normally there's only a tendency to look at the right, really bad things, or at least the media top lines of the disgraces or disasters when in the end of the day the economy is working we're still moving forward and and the more we trust the economy the more we trust technology the more we can go forward so if you could give us some constructive case studies that you can use and that we can benchmark or at least some ideas or suggestions for the people that will listen to this interview there will be more of course people experts in this area yeah, as I listened to you there, I think you answered your own question because the, the, the case study right now where we're here, I'm here, you're there, um, is I think it's obvious, but it's really good. And, um, you know, we've had a few blips along the, the, um, the journey of a video freezing or a voice um, sounding slightly odd but um, I think that that itself is actually a really uh, interesting case study. Um, I think that there's stuff happening um, in all sorts of industries um, you know we you know we, you, we've mentioned the obvious exciting ones in terms of transportation and medicine things like that but I think um, some some other uh, less obvious ones like the the legal example I gave um, the legal uh, world. I think there's interesting things happening in, in fintech. I think 
stuff happening on blockchain. And I know that's a particular area that you're interested in, you know, and I'm wondering, will they ever just find a use case and get on with it? I hear more people say, um, look what we're doing on blockchain, rather than saying just look what we're doing. Um, I don't remember back in, you won't remember either, back in 1995 visiting a website to say we bring you this website using TCP IP, you know, and the internet or whatever it was. Certainly I think that all these um, interesting things that are going on um, um, sometimes where we've high expectations should just get on with it and find some use cases and stop dropping the um, the AI terminology or the blockchain terminology or whatever it is and just, just people, I don't, I don't think, consume um, services in that way. They use it because they like it or it does something useful for them. Um, I think there's loads of interesting stuff happening in Germany, actually, in fact, and, um, in the space we work in, and I know it's probably slightly boring, um, but the whole telco um, landscape um, is, I think the Germans have taken a very mature kind of fair, um, um, quite rigorous and all-inclusive, actually, approach to the cybersecurity challenge within the 5G sphere, for example. And it's a case study that's probably maybe not what you had in mind, but I'd certainly encourage anyone interested in 5G and 5G security to look at what the Germans are doing in that, in that regard in terms of how they're managing the risk as, an, as a country. Um, I think that's quite um, novel and certainly many uh, countries could learn um, from. Yeah, it's a very interesting case because Germany as well as some of the most advanced rules in terms of privacy data and a lot of things in cybersecurity. So, yeah, there's a lot of much more. So I, I thank you so much, Colm, for this time and interview. It's been a pleasure. I think there's probably space for a lot of other things, especially you mentioned um, healthcare, financial data, um, and IoT, which is in itself a massive uh, yeah. a massive area. But while we leave the top level, the idea was today to have uh, an overview about these things. So I, I appreciate your time and, and uh, as well um, insights. And uh, I'm sure that you're going to follow up with other interviews. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks, yes. Dennis. Thank you.